And we're going to discuss that in this, the coming, coming chapter. How that we, we've been studying Acts on Wednesday nights at the, at the prayer and Bible study. And how the early church was characterized by unity. Unity. Which is something that we shouldn't strive for, but something that we should receive by humbling ourselves and looking to the Lord, there will be a unity in the local church. We read about how they had all things in common. There were none in need because those that had extra, they gave willingly and heartily. And how that they broke bread and gathered daily in each other's homes. They were of one mind and one accord, and there was a harmony in the early church. But because we are humans, even in our own assembly here, there's, we like to think that there's harmony, and there often is. But as long as we're this side of glory, we're always going to feel the tug of flesh. We're always going to feel our own desires, our own wishes, our own self come forward. And we're going to be at odds, not just with our brothers, our brothers and our sisters, but we're at odds with the Holy Spirit. And that's a shame. And, and uh, Paul chronicles how that in the early church, even up into Asia, there was a harmony and a unity in the church. <clears throat> there was agreement in those early days on circum circumcision, on food and drink, on what he called the vain traditions of the law. And they were in agreement. But old ways die hard. Old allegiances, old loyalties die hard. Some of us may be uh, alums of uh, different high schools, universities, and, and, we, and we owe allegiance true. Chafee High School, we owe allegiance true. You didn't go to Chafee. I did. My kids went to Upland. You may have gone to uh, Cal Poly or USC or UCLA or Humboldt or... New Mexico State or wherever it may be, and you may, and you may hold some loyalties to that, and you may uh, enjoy their colors and their traditions and their teams and their news, and, and, it's hard to let, and it's hard to let go. But how much more when your life was centered on the nation, on the religion, on the law of Israel? Handed down to you, not from your father and your grandfather, but from generations past for 1,500 years. This was a way of life. It was, a way of, it was actually a thing of pride. Even though you were an abject failure in following the law, it was a thing of pride that your nation and your people at least attempted to. You memorized it. You revered it. You broke it continually, but you revered it. And this was the loyalty and the history that you clung to. And you did it proudly. And as you were dispersed among the nations, you know, whether it be from Babylon East or into Asia and into Europe, the Jews were dispersed and they took with them and bore proudly. They, they bore the Torah with them. And they put it in a place of prominence in the tabernacle and their, in their synagogues. And that was the holy thing. I've been to a Messianic Jewish church. They need, they need to study Galatians. <laughs> they love the Lord Jesus and they're born again, but oh, do they revere the Torah. And they cover, the men cover their heads with the yarmulkes. And the rabbi reads in first in Hebrew and then in English. 
And then he brings the Torah out of the tabernacle, just as if you're in a local synagogue. And he walks through the crowd and they all, they all kiss it and they're... They need to study Galatians. This would clear some things up. <clears throat> and then in chapter 2 concludes, uh, Paul has to correct Peter. Peter had backslidden. And while he had originally affirmed that circumcision was no longer, and, and following the law, laws was no longer required, in fact, it was put aside. Yet Peter felt the tug of other Jews, and they said, but, but Peter, Peter, it, it's, it's our life. It's, it's been our way of life. I don't want to let go of our way of life. At least the outward symbols of it. Maybe not the spirit of the law, but at least the outward symbols. We need to observe the Sabbath. We need to abstain from meats. We need to, we need to be circumcised. Peter says, well, yeah, I understand, and, and I kind of feel that pull, too. I don't know what his feeling was. But Paul had to straighten him, uh, Peter had, uh, Paul had to straighten him out. Uh, so in verses um, of chapter 2, verses um, 11 through 13, is his, uh, how he had to privately and publicly rebuke Peter <clears throat> for this. Uh, Key verse is uh, 16b, chapter 2, verse 16b, uh, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This is his key verse. But the Jews <clears throat> had a hard time, they would pay lip service to it, but they had a hard time surrendering to the grace of God. They would, uh, they would, they would think that this, this would put us Jews in the same position and place as the Gentiles. We wouldn't be special. And they said, no, no, no. Gentiles must be made to obey the law for justification. They must be brought up to us. We can't be brought down to them. You see, so pride comes in, comes into this. We can't be like the Gentiles. We must make the Gentiles like us. Follow our tradition. And he concludes in the chapter, <clears throat> sound teaching, the doctrine preached and taught clearly, having arisen from that incident. And he begins the teaching of justification by faith and not of by works. It's interesting that through the entire book of Galatians, he transitions from the words ye, when talking to the Gentiles or to the entire church, to the words we, when speaking to the Jews, to the Jewish believers. We, we Jews, ye, ye children of God. We are all children of God. But then he has to, it's a shame that he has to point out to the Jews how they are in error. Not the Gentiles, the Jews are in error and you're trying to drag the Gentiles into your error. This is the dilemma that we face here. <clears throat> From the beginning of the book to the end, he lays out his, I wouldn't say argument, but he lays out the argument why the law is to be put aside. Why the law, though it was righteous and it was instituted by God, 
It had its purpose, it served its purpose, and its purpose was ended. Abraham was not under the law, was he? And we're going to go into that in the coming chapter. Abraham was not under the law. The law came two generations later. No, two generations later, Israel came about, and many, many, 400 years later, the law came about. And then there was that period of law. Did, the, did at Abraham's time of the covenant of promise, that age of promise, that through Abraham would all the nations of the earth be blessed, did that end when the law came? No, that promise to Abraham was still alive and intact, even though this underlying clause of the law was there. Gentiles were fortunate that they could fast forward and go from the promise of Abraham all the way to the realization of that promise in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But no, 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 they, they don't deserve that. They should be under the law like we are. We shouldn't be, we, they're getting it the easy way. They shouldn't be getting it the easy way. The key verse in, in 21 is also the last verse uh, in chapter 2, 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you can be justified through the law, did we need a sacrifice? Did we need a savior? Apparently not. Because we can be justified by following the law. But through the law is no man, is no flesh justified. Chapter 3, Jesse started last, last week. And Jesse is, uh, I think he's got three master's degrees. In fact, I know he has three master's degrees. One of them is in philosophy. Some of us that are a little less educated, <laughs> he, he can analyze a verse, and he can analyze a word, and he can analyze a phrase, and give you the history, and the etymology, and the Greek. And the... I caught part of what he was saying last week. <laughs> but he was taking us through chapter 3. He was supposed to make it all the way to verse 26, and I don't think he got anywhere near verse 26. Chapter 3 begins with this strong statement, O foolish Galatians. Oh, you who lack understanding. And then he goes into verse 2 and 3. And, and, the, and the question he lays before them reminds me of the questions that we hear in the Old Testament. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua said to the people. Elijah said to the, to the people, he said, Choose you this day. If Baal be God, worship him. But if God be God, worship him. But you need to choose. Why halt you between two opinions? And that's what the, the church in Galatia was doing. They weren't halting between two opinions. They tried to mix the two. They tried to meld them. They tried to bring death into grace. Penalty into pardon. Oh, foolish Galatians. Why are you so in love with the vain traditions of your fathers? So in chapter 3, he brings that to him. He, he he reminds them of how Abraham was saved by faith, not by the law. And long before the law was established, it was the promise to Abraham, the promise to Abraham, that through his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, not just Israel. Uh, toward the middle of the chapter, verses 15 through 18, Particularly verse 16, he speaks of the priority of the promise over the law. Verse 16 says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, 
but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. So in a simple way, he's saying here that the seed of Abraham is not a seed of Gentile and a seed of Jew. and a, There's but one seed of Abraham. And it is God's intention that they all receive the promise. And what was the promise? That the Lamb of God would come. Moses affirmed it hundreds of years before, uh, later when he says, He will raise up a brother like unto me, and him you will reverence. There's one coming. And then the prophets went on and affirmed the coming of the Messiah. But this was before the law. To thy seed, which is Christ. The priority of the promise over the law. And then the, the chapter ends with the purpose of the law. He reminds us that the purpose of the law was to condemn us. We all need to realize that we're sinners, right? We need to realize that. You know, heaven was made to be peopled by sinners, to be populated by sinners. In fact, that's a requirement. For you to go to heaven, you must be a sinner. It was made for sinners. Hell wasn't made for sinners. Heaven was made for sinners. Hell was made for Christ rejectors. But heaven's made for sinners. The law was to bring us, to condemn us, and bring us back to the promise. An understanding that we are hopeless in this world. We look at the law, and we are without hope in this world. But there was a promise. It brings us back to the promise. And it looks us, and it takes us forward to the, the, the keeping of that promise in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of it. So he gives the example. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. A schoolmaster. One of those knuckle-wrapping nuns. One of those proctors that tries to catch you cheating. One of those stern, stern disciplinarians you may have had in, in school. One of those that gave us swats in the principal's office. I remember that. A schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The purpose, the purpose of the law and the conditions of the law. <clears throat> Paul likens the law to a schoolmaster or a proctor. Think of an English boarding school. Any of you go to a boarding school where you actually left home and lived? Like, you teach at one. Did you go to one? Okay, you teach at one. He teaches at Webb School up here. Kids from not only all over Southern California, but all over the world, parents drop them off in, uh, in, in August and might not see them again till Christmas, and some of them might not even see them again till May. They're dropped off there, left in the care. At, maybe not at Webb, but say in England, you go to Eton or Sandhurst or one of those other prestigious boarding schools, you wear a school uniform. You have a school tie, which you're going to wear the rest of your life so that people know that, yes, I'm an Eton boy. I'm an Eton man. I'm a Sandhurst man. I'm... You're, going to sing this, you're going to sing the songs. You're going to make lifelong friends. You are going to have the traditions and the loyalty of that school for the rest of your life. You're not going to receive any love there. You're going to be punished. You're going to be 
you're going to be disciplined, you're going to be admonished, you're going to be made a man. We're going to make a man of you there. And this was a little bit of what the law was like. There was no love. You memorize your coursework by rote, and this was the law. This was, this was, you were confined to this, the law. Memorize it, do your best to do it. Try not to think how badly you've, you've missed and how badly you're condemned. This is your schoolmaster. What was its purpose? show that we are without hope in this world unless they look back to the promise and that promise looked forward to the coming of the Lamb of God. They forgot the, the, the two ends of the extreme. They were living under law. And this became to them uh, the center, the object of their lives. All right, let's look at the section that we're supposed to cover. It's just 15 verses. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 26. You'd think that he had made his point. He'd given his argument. He'd, he'd established his authority. He talked about the, how all of the church in Jerusalem and Judea was in agreement with him and with these, poli not policy, but with this doctrine, the truths revealed by God to him. He's got more. There's more. Chap uh, chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all, and we're using the word ye, speaking to everyone there, ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's the mention of the promise again of Abraham's seed. He's speaking to the church in general. I would, I would hope that when a Gentile heard this read or he himself read it, that he would smile and rejoice. And while one of the Jewish brothers read it, he would feel a twinge of conscience. But either way, they hear it, and it is to all of them. You are all the children of God. The Jew might think, of, of course we are. We've always been. The Gentiles are the lucky ones that are being brought in as second-class citizens. They need to be instructed. They need to follow our rituals. Oh, the pride. We are Ye are all the children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. Ye are all the children of God by the works of the law. No, 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 no. He just shot that to pieces. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized, and it is speaking of water baptism, but it is assumed that as soon as you're saved, you're going to get baptized. All of you have been baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? It should be a humbling thing. I put on a nice jacket today. I can't do the same with Christ. I can't put on Christ in the same way and then take it off later. 
you put on Christ, you're putting on his righteousness. You are putting on his blood. You're putting on his work and his worth. And it, is, and it has changed you when you put on Christ. For me to put on Christ, I have to put off something, don't I? I have to put off flesh. I have to put off self. I have to put off the law. I put these off and I put on Christ. And I'm clothed in his righteousness. And even though I'm far from perfect, I have been made fit to meet with my Savior. To enter the very throne room of heaven through the veil which is his blood. I put on Christ. What a marvel. What a wonder. And Paul reiterates, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Do you hear that, Jews? I don't think the Greeks had trouble understanding that. They always thought, <clears throat> I've never thought Jews were better than I am. But Jews always thought that they were better than the Greeks. So it's not difficult for a, a Greek to read this and to grasp it, but it was difficult for a Jew to read it. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither a slave nor a free man. There's neither rich nor poor. There's neither Roman nor barbarian. He's trying to show that there is no difference. There's neither male nor female. When you have put on Christ, you are one of his. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. It's hard to imagine this. He could have said, you are all ones in Christ Jesus. You are all individuals in Christ Jesus. Each one of you clothed in his righteousness. Each one of you individuals. But he says, no, you are one. You are one in Christ. You have equally been gifted with forgiveness, with righteousness, with a crown of salvation. You've been gifted equally. Each of us has been given a gift. Some, it's a public ministry. Others, it's a gift of hospitality or helps or, or a myriad of other things. We've all been given gifts. There's none that is giftless. There's none that hasn't been forgiven and redeemed, sanctified, set apart. Are we individuals? Yes. But... We are called to be one body in Christ Jesus. Neither Greek. Don't separate yourself by class, religion, history, color, background, social class, economic class. There is none. And I've got to preach to myself because I have very little patience and tolerance for people that aren't like me. Why can't everyone be like me? The world would be wonderful, wouldn't it? No, the world would be miserable if everyone were like me. Everyone would be selfish. Everyone would be proud. Everyone would be without care. Our challenge is not to be like me or to be like you. It's to be like him. And by being like him, we can be one. One in him, one like him. That's, that's the call. That's the challenge. He goes on. Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. 
Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. <clears throat> I love the picture that he gives here. Let's say that you are a child of a, maybe not a senator, governor, a king, a prime, just a well-to-do businessman. Uh, in fact, well-to-do enough that he has servants, he has nannies, he has uh, maids, he has uh, business advisors, he has uh, business managers, he has personal assistants. And then he's got us, his children, two-year-olds, six-year-olds, 12-year-olds. And we're his heir. And we might look at dad and say, wow, dad is a special, important person. So I can treat the servants like garbage because I am the heir. No, you will learn real quick that that nanny can backhand you good, that that servant, that that butler can put you in your place because until you become of age, you've reached your majority, you're no different than they are. You're going to have tutors. You're going to have lessons. You're going to have discipline. You're going to have instruction. You're going to have daily reg regimen you must follow. You can't just eat and drink what you want. They're going to prepare. A, they don't want to see you get, get uh, sick or, or overweight or lazy or whatever. So they're going to make sure you have a well-balanced diet. You are no better than a servant. You're under tutors and governors until the time appointed. <clears throat> By whom? By the father. It's not like, well, as soon as I graduate from high school, I'm, I'm done. No, no, no. The father has got, has got a trust set up for you, right? He's got a trust. You've heard of trust fund kids. At age 18, they get 10% of their trust. You know, and at age 21, it's now 30%. And not till age 30 are they going to get everything that's in their trust. This is some of the trust that I've heard set up. Who set up that trust? Their daddy did. Rich daddy set up that trust. And so they can talk big all they want, but they don't have the assets. They don't have the power. They don't have the position or the wealth until such time as the father stipulates. And it says here, until the time appointed by the father. What's he speaking of here? Uh, verse 3, even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of this world. Just like these children... <clears throat> who are sons of a prosperous man, they have no access to the privileges, the powers, and the wealth until the father stipulates. So you, the Jew, who have been under this law, under that wicked, not wicked, but that unloving schoolmaster who would slap your knuckles, who would tan your hide, you were under them. You may, you may have been partakers of the promise, but you're under the schoolmaster until the time that the father stipulates. And that time had just come. That time had just come. They were living in the day that the law was finished and grace had opened. What a time to be alive. How blessed would it have been to be one of the 12 or one of the hundreds that followed him around? To have heard his voice with your ears. To have touched his hand with your hand. 
to have looked upon his face. Yet they lived in this day where the Lord Jesus had been taken up to glory and his church was being established. His spirit was being spread abroad. The church was, was growing like, like wildfire. It was said that, well, in verse 4 it says, but when the fullness of time was come, it said that this was the moment. The fullness of time was come. The prophecies were fulfilled. The, the time of Daniel, the weeks of Daniel had been accomplished. This was the time. The wickedness of the world was full. The uh, empire of Rome had not only made it like one world government, but it had built roads across the empire that enabled the word of God to spread, which a few hundred years before were not possible. It would have been dirt trails. And now you've got beautiful stone paved roads that shed water. Our Roman engineering was amazing. The Greek language had made almost a universal language. When the fullness of time was come, what does it say? God sent forth his son. The fullness of time had come. This leads us to believe that the Father is now appointing the time when that inheritance would be given. When before we were children under the schoolmaster, he now makes us heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What a wonderful time it is. God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. This is all fulfillment of scripture. Who would have thought? Even John the Baptist, who would have thought? Though you, ex you expect Messiah, you, ex you expect him. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, you expect him now. Because you, you've got the revelation that the weeks of Daniel are spoken of. The, the wise men from the east, they knew. They were wise. They had studied prophecy. Was it because their crystal ball told them, oh, this is the time that star means? No. They had studied the scriptures. But did anyone think that God would send his son? He would send someone special. They all agreed on that. They would send Messiah, son of David. Did they expect that God would send his son? to be the savior of the world, made of a woman, made under the law. You know, the Lord Jesus never sinned, never knew no sin, incapable of sin, not, not formed or shapen in sin, but holy and perfect, was subject unto the law because he had not yet done the mighty deed that satisfied the law. He was born of a woman, born under a law. He was born a Jew. He was required to keep the law. He was circumcised the eighth day. He followed all the laws, and he followed them perfectly. He who knew no sin, born under the law. Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we, and again he uses the word we, 
might receive the adoption of sons. If the law keepers, and he says we, the followers of the law, had to be redeemed, it would be foolish to place them back in that position, wouldn't it? Back under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might become full, fully vested sons, not children under a schoolmaster anymore, but full members of the family. Fully vested, fully inherited, fully realized. That's what we've been taken from. You've been taken from a school where you just instructed and instructed. You memorized by rote. You you just you can't you can't pass the classes. You can't, and you've been lifted from that, and you've been put into full sonship. But I sure miss that classroom. I miss my knuckles being busted. I miss being corrected and instructed. I miss it. I miss it. He's trying to make it clear to them that this is not something you should, be, you, you should miss. Verse 6 says, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We of our own hearts are not going to cry, Abba, Father. I don't know exactly what they mean by Abba, Father. I know that when I was in Israel last year, we're in the pool at one of these resorts, you know, and Daddy's throwing his kid around. Oh, Abba, 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 Abba. And they're speaking Hebrew. It's Abba, Abba, Abba. I don't know if that means Father, Daddy, or, you know, it's a term of endearment. If there's a more formal word for Father than Abba, or if that's just the word for Abba. But it's what a child says to their father. It's what my son or daughter might say to me, Abba. And our hearts cry Abba through his spirit. We have no right to call him Abba, but he's my Savior's Abba. He's my Lord's Father. And when I have been redeemed of my Lord, when I have put on Christ his spirit, through his spirit, I can cry, Abba, Father. Oh, Father, this is the, this is the gift, the, the joy, the beauty of sonship with Christ. He reminds them in 7 that therefore, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. <clears throat> the proof of our sonship is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's our DNA test. Do you question whether you're truly a son of God? And whether you're a woman or a man, you're, 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 uh, you're considered a son of God. If you're considered a daughter of God, you might say, well, I, I, I can't, I have, I'm second in line to the inheritance. No, no, we are all sons of God. They're, what the verse say in the end of the chapter? There is neither male nor female. We are the sons of God. And what is the proof that we are the sons of God? We have his Holy Spirit within us. In Romans we read that his spirit testifies with our spirit 
that we are the sons of God. We are the children of God, the sons of God, and it's testified. Now we get into, <clears throat> we need to wrap this up quickly, 8 through 11, we'll, this is uh, where we end this. This is Paul's passionate plea. He has made his, he's made his case. He has, he has destroyed at every turn the need, the desire, the, the recognition of any worth in the law other than just pointing us to Christ. We go from the promise to grace without having to drop down here and travel through the, through the law. We jump from the promise to grace. Law was just there to point us to the keeping of that promise, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the chapter closes with his a passionate plea. How is it then when you knew not God, you did service unto them by which nature are no gods? You Jews gave service when you knew no God. You gave service unto the law. You Gentiles gave service unto your idols. You did all the labors, all the works, all the travail, all the trial, the failure, all of this, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? You've taken that jump from promise to place, from promise to grace, from promise to salvation, liberty and freedom. Why do you want to go back? How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly? Not the noble and righteous law, the weak and beggarly, he, he describes it as. In comparison to the position of liberty, freedom, and grace, Salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, returning to the law is beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. Even to the point where you observe days and months and times and seasons. It's not enough that, okay. circumcision, yes. Abstaining from unclean meats, yes. But let's, we've got to follow Sabbath. We've got to observe the new moons. We've got to observe the feasts, the festivals, the, the years. The sacrifices, jubilee, you go beyond and you're asking for this, to be put under the, the, the law, under the beggarly, weak and beggarly elements. He concludes by saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. I mentioned at the beginning that these were churches that Paul himself had planted, that he had lovingly labored in the field and he had met these believers and he had taught them and he had dined with them and he'd met with them and he'd wept with them and he'd prayed with them and he loved them. And he said, I'm afraid of you. That's all my labor, all my prayers, all my love, all my concern for you is in vain. That you turn away from the grace of Christ and you, re and you return to the to the folly, the beggarly, weak law. Oh, how I long that you look to Christ and him alone for your salvation. For us today, you know, we're, we're not Jews. We, we, don't, we don't revere the law anymore. 
We know it was just a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But yet, I think everyone should be like me. And you probably think everyone should be more like you. But we're, if we feel that way, we're fools. We're blind. We should be like him. He took us from the law. He clothed us in himself. He put his righteousness upon us. And that is his spirit is the one that we should strive to be like. Are we going to be a, a, an assembly that is united? Are we going to be a church that is united? If so, it's not going to be united to my thoughts, my feelings, my ideals, my style. It's going to be that we're united to the person of Christ, that we desire to be like him and to know him. Not to know of him, but to know him and the power of his resurrection. And this is what he delights in leading the Galatians to. And he fears that they'll not embrace it, the, the Savior, the freedom, the liberty, the grace that he has given them. Mark will uh, finish up the chapter tonight, I assume. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so, that you sent your Son. You didn't send another. You didn't send a created being. Father, you sent your very Son because you loved us. Father, you've led us out of, out of the condemnation of the law and into his glorious light. You've clothed us with his righteousness. You've, you've given us every blessing in the heavenly places. You've given us a Savior who loves us so. Father, we pray that you will instruct each of us, that you'll teach us, that you'll lead us into unity through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, does somebody want to give thanks for the... All right, well, <clears throat> we're going to go straight over to lunch from here. I, I believe it's ready. I was over there in the kitchen earlier. It smelled pretty good, and it looked pretty good, and there's a great variety, great variety.